For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. With a reminder to check out our latest crystal ball video, Big Trouble in the Tropical Troposphere, about how 35 years of computer models saying the best place to find significant man-made global warming was in the middle troposphere layer of the atmosphere over the tropics doesn't match actual evidence from satellites, balloons, and more. And in this readout from our Wednesday Wake Up newsletter, after a shout-out to our viewers in Portugal, and thanks to everyone who's backing our work, and especially those like Casual Citizen, who are encouraging others to do so as well, so you can just go click the donate button and make a monthly pledge, please, we start with another example of the facts just failing to fit the theory. You don't have to talk to any global warming alarmist for more than about 10 seconds before you get that bit from their catechism that reads, we believe in the melting Arctic ice and the rising sea that proceedeth from it, or words to that effect. And people regularly touted as proof positive in the comments on our videos, along with more and fiercer storms, wildfires and droughts, crop failures and such. The trouble is, the evidence just isn't there, including on the ice. Lately, the alarmists have been quietly backing away from Antarctica, which seems to have cooled dramatically over the last few decades. But Arctic ice isn't vanishing either. Perhaps because, compared to a 1979 to 2000 baseline, current Arctic temperatures are actually down slightly. And the ice, which was in a natural cycle up until 1979 and then down again, seems to be coming back. Just as the land-based Greenland ice cap is rebounding. You know, it's strange enough that the data doesn't fit the theory. It's even stranger that people keep saying it does anyway. Oh, and in that context, in the newsletter we also mention that a study of sea temperature readings by Australian government scientists way back in 1871 has been compared to modern data, and the finding is that the water around the Great Barrier Reef in the last 150 years has warmed by an astounding no degrees at all. And yet, we're told this warming is killing the coral, which isn't even dying. It's a very strange approach to evidence. Also on display in news stories wailing that climate change wiping out billions of sea stars study. Except then you read that they actually died off about eight years ago and they're not recovering quite the way they typically do from this cyclical phenomenon known as sea star wasting syndrome, which nobody even knows if it's a virus or a bacterium, let alone what causes it. Still, when in doubt, blame climate change, right? After the fact, whereas real science makes predictions, and then tests them. Like our prediction that something that got through the Roman warm period, and in fact, sea stars or starfish have been around for about 450 million years, and there are 1900 species or so, everywhere from the tropics to polar waters, and from the surface down to the abyss, they're not gonna die because of a half degree temperature change. And now, a word from our sponsor, and that's you. Because at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we're dependent upon support from our viewers and our readers. Please go to our donate page, make a one-time pledge, or if you can, a monthly one. I'm not talking a lot of money, though. If you've got it, we'll take it. $2 a month, $3, $5. That's the sustaining funding that we need to produce these videos on our newsletter. And now, back to me. We also talk about the embarrassment of Extinction Rebellion co-founder Gail Bradbrook admitting to an interviewer that she drives a diesel car and that she flew 11,000 miles for a holiday, including accessing medical treatment not available in the UK's public system, and then insulting the interviewer for thinking it mattered. Now, she's just one person. But then what about California Governor Gavin Newsom, who's fighting for his political life, and issued an emergency declaration allowing the burning of, yes, diesel, to avoid summer blackouts, while, as Michael Schellenberger complains, closing a nuclear plant that supplies over 8% of all his state's electricity at bargain rates. 
And in the newsletter, we also talk about Colby Kosh writing in the National Post about psychology, which has been wrestling with a replication crisis for a decade and just ran into the very embarrassing finding that a famous and widely cited paper on dishonesty relied on faked data. But at least in psychology, there's serious attention to the weakness of peer review, whereas in climate change, it's still meant to be a silver bullet rather than a wad of paper. And we present some good news. Apparently, blue whales have returned to Spain's Atlantic coast for the first time in 40 years, which you'd think would have to be cause for celebration, right? But instead, the local press found some alarmists to drizzle on the parade, saying he feared that global warming was driving the whales north out of their natural habitat and toward the brink of doom even though they're now back to where they used to be until overhunting nearly wiped them out. You just can't win with these people. Now, here at the Climate Discussion Nexus, we prefer to debate ideas, not motives. But when a CBC headline says municipalities ask Ottawa for billions of dollars to protect themselves from climate change, we do have to point out that when cities need money, and if it's available, if they claim to believe in warming, and that they're going to spend the money on things they claim are a response to warming, they do have a powerful incentive to stifle any doubts until the check clears. And speaking of less than reputable motives, we also continue University of Guelph professor Ross McKittrick's look at Stephen Coonan's landmark book, Unsettled. This time it's Coonan's insider account of the intellectual corruption within government and academia on climate. As Coonan writes bluntly on page 189, quote, When it comes to climate, those institutions frequently seem more concerned with making the science fit a narrative than with ensuring the narrative fits the science, end quote. In the book, he details examples of agencies being caught, quote, summarizing or describing data in ways that are actively misleading, end quote. And while media have the partial excuse of wanting to attract clicks with lurid headlines in order to get money, major scientific institutions have no such excuse. Or do they? What would happen to their budgets if they said, look, this whole climate thing's badly overblown, there's no crisis, we don't need billions to study it, and those politicians leveraging the issue and paying our salaries are way out of line? Now, Coonan's own suggestion to try and fix the problem is to borrow from the military the idea of red teams, whose job it is to try to find weaknesses in draft reports. But he pushed this idea as a senior Obama administration official, only to have it finally considered under Donald Trump and then rejected. The bureaucrats, politicians, and scientists closed ranks to avoid scrutiny of their conclusions or their methods, which is not good for science. And speaking of science, we also continue our look at what the new IPCC AR6 report really said, as opposed to what the press claims it said, this time with respect to whether a lack of rain and snow is causing more droughts. Check it for yourself. And we go back to CO2science.org for another paper showing how good CO2 is for plants, including maize and, yes, again, soybeans. So, one thing more GHGs probably do mean, for better or worse, is more tofu. But they don't mean less Arctic ice. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson.